Rap rock seemed like a strange combination or fusing of genres when Rage Against the Machine appeared on the scene in 1992. While it had been done before, it seemed like more of a novelty that couldn't possibly gain real traction in the mainstream. Against all odds, the band created a crossover sound that appealed to metalheads as much as it did to hip-hop heads and conscious rap lovers everywhere. Their topics ranged from political angst to civil unrest to freedom for all. Their lyrics are anti-authoritarian and revolutionary, yet it was their hard-edged sound and anthemic choruses that brought them to an arena level. To this day, they remain a driving force on mainstream radio and their legacy has endured. Today on Hidden Jukebox, we discuss Rage Against the Machine's 1992 eponymous debut. And we are coming to you live from two different places in Seattle as we have quarantined ourselves. Yes. It's, uh, it's the impending apocalypse. And I don't think Hidden it's Jukebox, impending anymore. It's, it's here. The apocalypse is here. But we at Hidden Jukebox will never quit on you guys. We will be here through the apocalypse as you're all sitting in your homes waiting to die. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but you can listen to us talk about like a third eye blind record. Which is coming up here very, very shortly, much to our chagrin. So, uh, Matthew, before anything, I want your take on this because you mentioned before we start recording here that you don't really like this album. Okay, so this came out. So there's a lot of kind of ingredients that go into that, I think. And I had not listened to this all the way through in a long time before preparing for this episode. And when this album came out, I was in high school and it was very popular. And I, like, I don't know if you had this experience too, but I could already sort of see where this was going, that that Rage Against the Machine was a good thing that was going to spawn a lot of bad things because the people who were listening to it were not like my politically aware buddies who are mostly listening to like, you know, watching 120 minutes and listening to that stuff. It was jocks. Well, it's it's funny you mention that because the first thing that I ever heard from Rage Against the Machine was Freedom, which is the last track on the album when I saw the video on 120 minutes in early 1993 because this came out at the end of 1992. Yeah, okay, fair. Um and the same as you, most of the people who I knew who were listening to it were not hip hop heads at all. And although the lyrics are really easy to memorize on this album and like my guy friends, which it was barely any women that I knew who listened to this, mm-hmm. my guy friends would memorize all the lyrics. I don't think they were paying attention to a single word that Zach De La Roque was singing. They just could sing along to it. Well, except for, uh, fuck you, I won't do what you told me. Yes, but I still don't know what, if if they were thinking about what he was trying to say, they just were like, yeah, yeah, Fuck I don't want to do my homework either. Yeah. You know what? I'm in sixth grade and all of this means <laughs> a lot to me politically. Uh, and, you know, I'm following everything that Zach De La Roca is talking about. And I also wonder uh, everything going on in the Zapatista movement currently. Exactly. <laughs> so it- when I listen to this now, I like it takes me back in a way that's kind of uncomfortable. And. It is so on the nose. Like, it's, I, I don't know. Um, like, I, I think, uh, is this a podcast where we're, like, supposed to talk about our thoughts on music? Because, uh, like, I think mine are going to get real, uh, real jumbled. 
I, I think that's what we've done in the past. And one of the uh, things about this podcast is we don't have rules. So okay, be cool. my guest. T- um, tell me what you think. So, I mean, there, there, there's stuff here I like. And we'll get into specific songs. There are certainly like particular songs I like and particular things about some of the songs that I like. But uh, like it's the the guitar is. What do you think of Tom Morello as a guitarist? Let's just, let's just this go. Is t- this is tough because I absolutely love this album and I have always loved Rage Against the Machine. But I think Tom Morello is the ultimate one trick pony when it comes to guitar and kind of a cop out in terms of learning how to become a really good guitar player. And this is going to make people hate me. Because <laughs> I, I know people who are like, he recreated what guitar was. He's a god. I think he just like gave up on learning how to solo, figured out how to make noise with it. And is like, instead of soloing, I can just make noise at the solo section and pretend like because it's hip hop, that's what you do with hip hop is create new noises. Yeah, I'm not. No, I'm not saying I think he's a bad guitar player. I think he's a good guitar player. And most of the time, I don't like what he's doing. Um, well, as as a musician, like he he has riffs to last for days, mm-hmm. but all of those riffs are in minor pentatonic. There <laughs> yeah, are no sure. major key Rage Against the Machine songs. There are no oh well, that's really unique and interesting, and that's not where I was expecting it to go. It's all like here's a pentatonic riff, here's another pentatonic riff, and he's very very good at writing them, and they're singable and they're catchy but they're hardly unique. Yeah, okay. I I think I think I'm going to learn some things like about myself over the course of this episode because uh we were talking for some reason uh like uh my family about Elton John this morning and I was looking at like a list of Elton John hits and realizing like Elton John not only is a is a great songwriter because he can write a great song, but he can write a whole bunch of different kinds of great songs, all of which sound different and all of which sound like Elton John songs. And it's okay to be the kind of band that can only really write one kind of song and do it well. And and I think you can put Rage Against the Machine in that category. But wow, does this all sound the same to me? I, I well, feel so old. <laughs> And and I've discussed this on the show before that I'm a huge fan of a band or a singer that cr- can create such a unique sound that you can hear it on the radio and go, I have no idea what this is, but I know exactly who this is. Yes. And Rage Against the Machine have got a signature sound. No question. That is so recognizable that even the people who were ripping them off following their huge success you still go, that sounds like they're ripping off Rage Against the Machine, but that's not Rage Against the Machine. Right. Oh, absolutely. How are you doing? And and I mean, I think Zach De La Roca is like the biggest ingredient in that because like none of none of his copiers could could really access what he was bringing. We should listen to a song so that that. so that we can kind of get into what the sound is. And what Zach De La Roca was doing. Okay, can we start uh, with Killing in the Name? I, I was going to suggest that exact thing. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. 
So, first off, I thought that this album was way bigger than it actually was. This album has sold 3 million copies, which is certainly That's nothing to, to scoff at. But when you consider that Alanis Morissette sold 17 million copies, it didn't exactly have the widespread success that I was expecting to see when I started researching it. But sure. let's talk about the sound first a little bit. Uh, yeah, let's In that, that song, you have got four riffs by the time it reaches the chorus like they yeah that's they, fair they are just writing pentatonic riff after pentatonic riff and throwing them together and doing it in a really really catchy way like every single section of this song is like a sing-along so oh yeah definitely so so and the, these uh you know meathead guys who loved this stuff and didn't pay attention to what the stuff meant could still just sing along and be like, oh, yeah, rock it. Yeah, there's like Zach DeLaRocque has got a really good. I mean, I can't even begin to do it. I uh, So one of the reasons that we uh, chose to do this album this month is Rage Against the Machine was supposed to be doing a reunion tour that was going to last for six months and it's still going to happen. But of course, the wonderful coronavirus has postponed that now. And I will no longer be seeing them at the end of April. But one of the things I was most curious about is in his early 50s now, can Zach De La Roca oh, that's a good still question. pull off the sound, the energy on stage that he had in the 90s? Because I, yeah. I saw Rage Against the Machine in 1997 with The Roots opening up, and it was one of the most high-energy shows I have ever seen in my life. Just an hour and a half of straight raging on stage i bet he still got it maybe but like not that this should be any sort of comparison but i think of somebody like bob seeger who just did his final reunion tour and can't sing the way he did at all like straight up skipped huge hits because he couldn't he can't do it like even if he transposes to a different key it just doesn't sound right and i wonder if yeah, but Bob Seger is much older. Zach Taylor Roque is in his 50s now. When, when I was discussing this debut album with somebody the other day, they're like, yeah, I mean, it's great. And, you know, it's not that old. And I said to them, this album is almost 30 years old. I know. That is insane to me that this album came out 28 years ago. I know. It's classic rock at this point. They've it totally is classic rock. They've been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice already. Um, this is like 
I, I'm trying to remember like whether this really fits into this category, whether I'm shoehorning it, but like this this is definitely that certainly music that teenagers would listen to, like knowing and or like desperately hoping that their parents and teachers would find it scary and upsetting. <laughs> you know? Hey mom. Like please and there always hate has this. to be music like that. What's hey that? mom, please hate this. Just Exactly. No, no, it's true. And that that's, you know, doesn't say anything about whether the music is good or bad, but like, you know, this is this is one of my favorite things that like uh, you know, remember like parents were scared of Marilyn Manson and like can you imagine like, you know, just you know, let alone now but like, you know, 3 years after Marilyn Manson came out, anybody being scared of Marilyn right. Manson or like fucking Metallica. Yeah. Like like there's you there's know? always been stuff like this. Guns and Roses, uh two live crew like even two live yeah, crew even yes. across genres it's like your parents do not want you to listen to this they're like why did right. somebody have to make this you know my kids are gonna like it and i don't want them to hear about it right so like we're the, the thing that's different about this is that like it, maybe you were scared that your kids were going to become like bomb throwing revolutionaries. I don't know if that's really a thing that, <laughs> that like suburban parents were afraid of. I, I don't know if we, we were thinking about banding together or anything like that. Like that's part of what we're talking about is I don't think that any of us were listening to this in regards to the actual topical parts of, of the lyrics. We just thought that he wrote yeah. these anthemic lyrics. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, listening to it now, like there are so many elements in Killing in the Name, which which is probably my favorite Rage song. Um, like, I like how it turns the volume down and makes you wait for the chorus. You know how I feel about that. Like, and does it in two different places? Like, you know, the, the verse is, is pretty quiet. And then the uh, the pre-chorus, you know, now now you do what they told you. Um, and like, it genuinely is still a, a horrifying problem that that our police forces are infested with white supremacists, which is what the song is right. about, largely. Right. And they they do all of those things really well. Like the the way yeah. that they form their songs is because they're kind of hip hop infused influence influenced, even though they're a rock band they have to figure out ways to make the music interesting without a bunch of different movements, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. They do it, but they're more doing the hip-hop form of things where it's like, we have to figure out other ways to create movement in here. I want to I step back and ask a question about this. I know we need to like listen to more songs. Sure. Or this episode is going to be two hours long <laughs> yeah. and, and involve like mostly uh, one, one guy complaining about how he doesn't like this as much as he thinks he should. Um, how do you listen to Rage Against the Machine? Like, what is the context for enjoying this music? Because I I watched this great YouTube video, which we'll link to by Adam Neely. Um, and it was about how he tried to expose himself to his least favorite genre of music to see if he could find something in there to enjoy. And his least favorite genre of music is contemporary Christian music. And he ended up he didn't end up liking it, but ended up like understanding some things about like how people relate to music and how like to best enjoy a particular genre of music, like it has to be enjoyed like in a particular context. And he talked a lot about classical music and about how there is like a strain of classical music criticism that says classical music itself is fucking amazing. And the way that we have like 
decided as a society is the only way to enjoy it, which is like sitting in a silent, you know, being completely silent, sitting in a symphony hall or, you know, sitting and appreciating it at home with a glass of wine is like bullshit and is not really what that music should be about. Um, And so I wonder if like part of the reason I'm finding it hard to appreciate this Rage Against the Machine album is because I'm just like sitting on my couch with headphones trying to like get into the right spirit. Well, I I actually mostly listen to this music uh, sitting in silence on the couch with a glass of wine. Oh, okay, that makes sense. What what's your what do you think <laughs> is a good uh, varietal for what, for uh, wh- which wines could we pair to each successive Rage album? <laughs> this this is a fine Cabernet. Um, yeah. So, so what's the funny thing Killing is? Killing in the grape. <laughs> nice. the The funny thing is what I listen where I listen to this album more than anything these days is in the gym. It gets oh, me of course. so pumped when I'm working out. Like it just makes me want to work harder. I find myself like singing along with the anthemic choruses and driving everybody around me crazy most likely. It's it's just it's like it's made to get you amped up. So Yeah, and, that makes sense. Like, like long drives, if I'm starting to feel tired and want like I, I need to pull over and rest for a bit. If I put on a Rage Against the Machine album, it's going to pump me back up and I'm going to be good to go. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Like I started a new job like six months ago that involves a lot of like, you know, sitting at the computer and answering tech support emails. And I found that like for the first month or so, I had to listen to punk rock pretty much the whole time to stay focused. Right. And like, I don't know where that came from or why particularly punk rock, but that's what my brain needed. Okay, we got to get to another song. We got it. Let's listen to Take the Power Back. Okay. realize since we're recording remotely like i can't i can't see you do like the uh you know cut cut it gesture oh yeah tell me when to cut it you're doing fine i i i've taken the power back is what i'm saying nice so uh lyrics about the white race in the u.s government and their control over everything and uh i don't know if it's the band themselves or the group that they think that they represent taking the power back but i do find it a little ironic and funny that the band is mostly white guys and them thinking that they have to take the power back from the white u.s government yeah and i mean when we when we elected um uh uh 
I can't think of another member of Rage Against the Machine. When we elected Tom Morello president, it didn't go as well as I was hoping. I, I know. We we thought that he had the answers to everything, and uh, we still don't have he the universal- He took the nuclear button, and he was just like flipping it on and off over and over. <laughs> I have full control. <laughs> um, so this song has a killer bass line, and this is what got yes, me- Yes, I love that. As, as a bass player- learning the entire album front to back because it's so many riffs that like after i learned this in the 90s i I was literally better at pentatonic scales just from learning everything and it kind of taught me how how to do slap bass uh so you mentioned is zach de la roca a singer a rapper or something else yeah what do you think um i think i think he's he is a rapper more than anything. I think he's very lyrical because what we used to do it in the nineties is we'd try and sing along with this stuff and his range is high. So as a rapper, yeah. you usually think, Oh, well he's doing this monotone type of spitting of lyrics and he is melodic in his rapping to where he's yeah. got this range. That's actually hard to hit as a singer. Yeah, so definitely. I think he's both. I think so too. And you know what what just occurred to me is I I think he's sort of a hype man who who is not who's like hyping himself. Hyping himself. Like well, I mean cuz there's, you know, a hype man is usually working alongside someone else and hyping them, but but he is the the lead and only vocalist in the band, but he's doing all this hype man stuff like, yeah, you know. Well, uh, what I went back and watched uh, this deck. No, this is a very good observation, and you need to go with me on it. I am going to go with you. You let let <laughs> let me okay. get to it. So uh, <laughs> I went back and watched Sound City this week, which is Dave Grohl's documentary about one of the most famous recording studios in L.A. And Sound yes. City was where this album was recorded, and it was one of the last holdouts for analog recording. It had this amazing analog Neve board, and this album was recorded mostly live in the studio, and the story goes that the band recorded it in only a couple days and invited a bunch of their friends into the studio basically to hang out and watch them record because they were that casual of a band and didn't feel like they needed to focus, and I think wanted the audience. And so, as a hype man... It was like Zach wanted a bunch of people around so he could feel like he was actually amping up a group of people well they recorded really interesting this. actually because it is very hard to imagine like someone alone in a vocal booth delivering this performance. I know like like bring that shit in I guess right. bring bring that shit in somebody bring yeah. that shit in. <laughs> Please. Please. Do you need me to submit the order online? <laughs> Um, one of the other things I wrote is these guys are angsty. Like, yeah, you listen to all of their stuff and it's like they were very, very angry about the way that society was going at this time. I don't know if that's what I think of when I think of the word angsty, though. I mean, I think I think they're angry. I think of angsty as being more like emo sort of, you know? I I can see that. Okay, so maybe not angsty so much as angry. Like, yeah. like they did not like the way that the U.S. government handled pretty much anything. Which is funny because they were around at the 
at the end of the Bush era, mostly during the Clinton era, and mm-hmm. and I I feel like as staunch liberals from the way that they come off, maybe a little bit socialist, uh, they would have liked Clinton's policies and. I, I don't think so. I, I don't. Think- I was I was around then. <laughs> um, like I I'm not going to say there was no difference between between uh, the the Bush one years and the and the Clinton years, but uh, the the things that they're talking, the systemic issues that they're talking about on this problem uh, on this album, uh, like don't don't change when when the man at the top changes. Right, and and one of the things that comes through is they don't like the man. No, they they they're opposed to the man. Yeah, they they. They would go so far as to stick it to him. So I want to listen to another track and then I want to talk about crossover music a little bit. Yes, please. Okay. So um, I want to, I want to listen to the first track bomb track. Yeah. Did Rage Against the Machine influence the Beastie Boys or vice versa? Oh, vice versa. I mean, the Beastie Boys had right. been around We're for much earlier. Okay. eight, nine years by the time that this came out. But, okay. But so much less of that hard edge or political type of for sure. topic that than this. I mean, Fight for Your Right to Party has a rock riff, but it's hardly like this. No, I mean I'm thinking I'm thinking of uh, of sabotage as being sort of a uh, a apolitical Rage Against the Machine song. Sabotage was almost this exact same time. Yeah, it was '94. I had to look it up. But, uh, but oh, by the way, speaking of things I had to look up, Bob Seger is literally older than your mom. Oh, Jesus, I can't believe he can still tour. I know. So, uh, crossover music. So, um. I feel like this music had a wide success due to the appeal that it had on rock radio as well as rap radio. Maybe not as much on rap radio, but the idea of of being able to write music that appeals to a mass audience across genres is so hard to do. I think of like CeeLo, Fuck You, um, Mm -hmm. most of what Adele writes. Like She's not on hip-hop radio, but she's on pop radio She's on yeah. alternative radio. You hear in multiple places. And then Macklemore, shout out Seattle, uh, yep. very much w- writes these things that are culturally appropriate. So like he's hip hop. Uh, 
he got adopted a little bit by the alternative type of sound, especially with stuff like I, Same Love. I was so happy when Macklemore got adopted. <laughs> he's, a, he's a part <laughs> at, of at us now. At age 27. <laughs> at age, I think he was 30, actually, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so creating this music that appeals to a mass audience, which I don't think that Rage had any, you know, intention of doing that. Like, I think they were just writing what they want to write and and not trying to create any sort of special sound they they just want to do their thing but accidentally creating something that worked on many levels for many different people and yeah for sure bomb track like really epitomizes that where it's just so heavy and rock but the lyrics are very very much hip-hop yeah is that is that bass on the intro that is based on the intro. Yeah, that's a great intro. Yeah. Um, and again, it's one riff, and when the guitar comes in, it's a totally different riff. And they're both very, very hook-oriented. So I feel like this uh, cross-genre thing is is happening more often in the last couple of years than any time previously that I remember. I mean, I think... Like the Lizzo album got played everywhere and everyone loves that album, deservedly so. Um, Janelle Monet, I think, is another another artist who, I, I, who can be played anywhere. I thought you were going to say Billie Eilish. I'm like, no, because you hear Billie Eilish on alternative radio and it's like, I don't think this belongs here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I like Billie Eilish a lot. <sighs> It, it it just doesn't do it for me, but she is very polarizing. Well, so yeah. so this brings up something that I was thinking about, though, in, in terms of this crossover type of stuff. Is this record labels who are signing artists still, which not a lot of record labels do anymore, trying mm-hmm. to find ways to make as much money off of pos- as possible off of the artists that they decide to sign and put money down on? Wait, I don't think I understood the question. So. Are record labels where they used to go, here's our rock artist, here's our rap artist, right. here's our adult contemporary artist. Are record labels now going, where are we going to find somebody who we can market to absolutely everybody and get the most out of our money based I mean, off of the fact? I think, yes. I think certainly record labels like want to make as much money as possible. I don't think this is something that they can force, though. Like I, certainly not, but but I don't think that that uh, whoever was before Geffen, whoever signed Fleetwood Mac, went. Mm-hmm. Oh man! Oh, the hip hop heads, the disco heads are gonna love Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they were thinking a lot about the hip hop heads at the time Fleetwood <laughs> Mac was signed. I I don't know. You you know, uh, <laughs> Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, like I think that was still later. <laughs> Probably, I I can see Stevie Nicks doing a crossover album with Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> sure, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think like there's still so much random alchemy that happens. Like you know, despite the fact that uh, that record labels will do whatever they can to manufacture hits, they still fail most of the time. Most of the like, time, yeah. It's it's um, it's what people don't hear. Like. It, yeah, absolutely. You, you you can't really give examples of this because over exactly. and over again, labels put something out that nobody ever hears because it never gains any sort of traction whatsoever. Right. And I'm not I'm not saying it's like a pure meritocracy, just like that it's it's a lot more random 
than than people imagine? Uh, yes. But, you know, how, how do you capture lightning in a bottle? Like, right. Like that, yeah, that whole I, idea. Right. Does every record label want to find the next Lizzo and the next five Lizzos? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Is is that going to be an easy project for any of them? No. Oh, I, I always thought that that A&R people are have like one of the hardest jobs in the world. If, yeah, absolutely. If, if if they were baseball coaches, they would have got fired long ago because they they just find one person out of every 100 that actually works out for a label. And it's even harder these yeah. days than it used to be. Um, even Rage Against the Machine had three huge albums, not one uh, cover album that was not very big. And they were only around for eight years before their yeah. original breakup. And, you know, the the record label kind of lucked out with it because I listen to this stuff and I go, how would anybody have thought at the time that this was going to be extremely successful? Yeah, so I, I have a couple of questions. Are there any other rap rock artists that you enjoy other than Iodot and the Uppercuts? My my own band for those that Which don't know. Which is your know. band. And and you're just uh, assuming that I like my own band. It's That's not, true. Maybe not, maybe you're not a big fan. It's not like I listen to it at home. We we are arguably influenced by this band, although Oh, for sure. I I would never admit it. It is really hard for me to pick anything because for some reason the first band that pops into my head when i think rap rock is limp biscuit and the second one that pops into my head is kid rock and uh-huh 311 311 i kind of like incubus yeah i kind of like although incubus okay. is definitely more melodic um what's what's an example of an incubus song uh uh drive was Sing us probably a few the, bars dr- drive was their biggest hit do you really want me to do that yeah, I really do because I don't know an Incubus Whatever song, but I know I'm going to know it. Tomorrow brings, I'll be there. There we open go. Arms and open eyes. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, but it's totally not really rap rock crossover. They did a lot though. They had a DJ in the band, and and we're trying to create that sound. And I really do yeah. like a lot of 311 stuff, but still, both bands way more melodic. And the stuff that was more rap rock. Oh, most of it I couldn't stand. And that was oh, totally a label response to trying to get another hit like Rage. And it mostly was embarrassingly bad. Like, I don't meet, and maybe I, it, there's just the people who I keep around me, but I don't meet anybody who's like, well, you know, if I'm listening to my top 10 bands, Kid Rock is definitely in there. And are we going to talk about the fact that uh, after uh, their final album, uh, the uh, remaining well, Zach De La Roca quit or was or was pushed out. I think he quit. I think he quit. He and he was didn't replaced by Chris Cornell, and uh, they made a bunch more albums. They did. As, that still as seems like slave. a weird thing. And and I'm really torn on Audio Slave. Some of their stuff uh-huh. I really liked, but I I do too. W- one one of the problems, if you want to use that word, with Audio Slave was all of a sudden they had two different types of songwriting in one band and Mm -hmm. so you get like uh i am the highway i think is the the name of the song that's obviously chris cornell and that is like hey rage against the machine why don't we write a ballad and see how that goes and it was a huge hit but i'm wondering if the rest of the band is saying they're going oh god this is just soul sucking I don't know. I mean, I think I think they were like sitting on actual sacks of money. 
<laughs> so, just, so that that tends to like unsuck the soul a little bit. Yeah. Well, I I don't hear it and go. I really like this. Like, I still liked this. There's a, a song. I think their first single was called Coaches, and was just like that heavy rock level of Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. with Chris Cornell doing his heavy rock level of vocals. I'm like, this is why this band is totally going to work. But it yeah it was not rage against the machine like that no. that's what was really interesting about it is it like the other band that i always lump in with audio slave is velvet revolver and yes Vel- of course velvet revolver like definitely sounded like this perfect mesh of guns and roses and stone temple pilots audio slave seemed a little bit forced yeah for sure very forced um, actually I mean, show me how to live. (laughs) Uh, I want to listen to Wake Up if we can. Okay, let's do it. in the um, air in the land of hypocrisy exactly uh I have, a, I have a story about this song um recently i was in a bar in pomona california and uh the the song cashmere the led zeppelin song was playing and then it finished and this song came on and me and two of my friends all thought that they had just started playing cashmere <laughs> over again which is weird because i never thought of that until you mentioned that to me uh, but it's pretty similar, it, right? It's, it's a very, very similar riff at the beginning. And but again, then when the next riff comes in, that is a total Soundgarden riff. It is. It, Isn't it? it? It is. And then there's a third riff when the vocals come in. They, yeah. They would do this over and over again. So the two things I have to say about this song are, one, it's another song about racism in the American government. Um they it's kind of Zach De La Roca claiming that MLK and Mal- Malcolm X's uh, assassinations were arranged by the government, which uh, not impossible, not not impossible. Um, but what's funny is this song is just over six minutes long. And the w- refrain at the end is Zach De La Roca screaming the words wake up over and over again. And sure. friend of the show, George McCleary when we used to have sleepovers at our place would turn this song on our, to our very large speakers and keep it really quiet 
fast forward to the end of the song and just play it at full volume to wake us up. Yeah, and I absolutely hated it. For, hated him for it, and still to this day, every time I hear this song, it like gives me nightmares thinking about waking up during high school to this song. Yeah, did he ever try the same thing with the Arcade Fire song "Wake Up"? Doesn't have the same effect. What's weird is I just listened to that song for the first time in a while this week, and it's a great uh-huh. anthemic song. But the only time that they say "wake up" in the song is during one of the choruses, really quiet, and it just doesn't have during one of the, the verses. Same... <laughs> uh, during one of the verses, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just doesn't have True. have the same ring to it whatsoever. It's got it's got a lot of whoa 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 whoa's. Yeah, it's it's very uh, sing songy. But uh, yeah, not not very rage against the machiney. Yeah, well, this okay. th- this also like doing this show makes me think a lot about song form and doing different genres on the show makes me think about like how do bands choose to do song form? And one of the things I want to bring up on this show is the way that rage is somewhat formulaic in the way that they put together their songs. So they actually okay, do have courses. They they. Yeah tend to start with a long intro they will do a zach verse they will do either an instrumental chorus section or they'll do something that's anthemic they'll go back to another verse and always in the center there is a uh tomorello solo if you can call it that on this album he Mm -hmm. really does do some guitar types of solos on evil empire it's mostly just noise by the time he gets to audio slave it's all just noise and then oh, they'll, they'll do some sort of instrumental breakdown. And usually the song ends with an unrelated refrain of Zach De La Roca screaming something. So, yeah. So like on the song Freedom, he's just screaming freedom. Yeah. At the end of the song and yep. doesn't doesn't do it anywhere else in the song on Wake Up. He's screaming Wake Up at the end of the song on Killing in the nice. Name. He's screaming. Fuck you. I won't do what you, you tell me. Yeah, like he does this over and over again on every song. So if you listen to the album track by track, which is part of the goal of this show is stop listening to singles, start listening to whole albums and how bands put them together. It works cohesively because they are doing the same things over and over again. And some people might, might find that repetitive. I think it's great. Um, yeah, no, I have no problem with that, and that's that's like uh, another reason why it's why it would be a good gym album. It's a great gym album. I've got, I like working out to rock music, and that's why I think of this much less as rap and much more as rock music. What What are a couple of your other favorite albums to work out to? Ooh, Genuine question. That that's tough. Um, uh, this this is gonna. <sighs> I, the more uh, embarrassing the answer, the better. Okay, one of my big guilty pleasures in this day and age is a band called Coheed and Cambria, and they're oh, really, I'm familiar. They're really geeky rock, but I like heavy rock music to work out to, and they're, sure, they're very heavy and they're very fast, and it's super super energetic. So it it's great to work out to. Um, but I, I also like working out to things that are really fast and dancey. Like if I will put on Jamiroquai's first or second sure. album and work out to that. So it's it's anything fast with a beat. Like I'm not going to work out to the Smiths or Morrissey. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it just doesn't quite get the blood pumping. Yeah. Having said that, we should do a Morrissey record. 
he, yeah, because like, after the Smiths, he was mostly putting stuff out in the 90s, right? Yeah, like uh, maybe Your Arsenal would be a good one or uh, Voxel and I. I think those are both 90s. Those are probably my two favorite 90s Morrissey albums. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I... Go ahead. Unrelated, uh, we should also do a Pixies album. And one of the things oh. is at the end of, of Sound City, when you watch that documentary, during the credits, Dave Grohl asks all of the different musicians who he interviews uh, what their first band was. And everybody's saying these weird, obscure names. And he gets around to Black Francis and he goes, the Pixies. The Pixies <laughs> were his first band. That is amazing. It's very, very rare in music that you yeah. just strike success off the very first thing that you ever do. Well, there are only two 90s Pixies albums, but they're both great. So, yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Um, okay. I want to listen to to one more track, but what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say something about the track we're about to listen to, so let's just play it. It's uh, Know Your Enemy. Yes. The, the intro is always one minute long. I know they do long intros. One of the things I love about this intro is that really interesting guitar riff that Tom Morello is doing. Yeah. Feels like the drums are going to come in on a fast punk 16th note thing. And instead they come in on this like four, four slow hip hop yep. beat with the bass doing this really slow thing behind it. And the guitar is continuing on. And then when everything kicks in, it's really fast again. That's awesome yeah, to me. Like this is this may be like too geeky, but like, do you know how Tom Morello is doing that uh, staccato, like like uh, strobe light kind of sound with his guitar? I do not. Here's what he's doing: he plays a Les Paul, which has two pickups, and you can uh, it has a switch to select which pickup, but also has volume controls for each pickup. So he just turns one of the pickups all the way down and then just like flips the switch back and forth. So he's basically turning his guitar on and off over and over. That's kind of what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, that's uh, what he's doing. And he does a lot of tricks like that, like yeah. uh, playing above the nut uh, to create like yeah, harmonic types of noises above the nut. Um, I like how you write for this solid riff, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I like that riff. It's fun. Um. I, I like this whole song. Like I like I love how at a time that Tool was just becoming popular, they got Maynard James Keenan to come into the studio and just record a, a verse, which he most yeah, likely made up on the spot. I think so. 
my favorite thing that I didn't know about this album until preparing for this episode is that this song references the movie Room with a View. Is that really why he says still? I think it is. This is the song he says still in a room without a view, right? I don't think there's any other source for that phrase. I I don't know. I don't, I don't see I mean, that. I guess it, I guess the book preceded the movie. Maybe. <laughs> like, but it, it doesn't whether, whether he knew it them. or not, the phrase room with a view is only a so like the only place that that phrase came from is the book and movie room with a view. It's it's possible. So uh, now that we've been talking for almost an hour, I feel like yeah. I still have not got your actual answer as to why you don't really like. OK. This. I think I I think I have kind of figured it out. Like there's always going to be like some element of uh you know, we can't really explain why we like or dislike any particular piece of music. But here's what I think is going on. In the Adam Neely video that I talked about earlier uh about where he tries to get himself to like Christian rock, the thing he goes around at the beginning of the video asking people like what is your least favorite genre of music? And the thing he finds over and over is that people's least favorite music is very similar to their favorite music, but with like something tweaked that doesn't work for them. And so if you look at this, like I like all of the things that this band is doing. I like left wing politics and I like loud guitars and I like heavy beats and I like screaming and I like rapping. And so it is like, kind of inevitable like i can't put my finger on what the thing is but like the thing that we're going to listen to that i'm going to surprisingly dislike is going to be something that's really close to the, the stuff i like and you know whether it's just like kind of too on the nose for me or like the guitar riffs are too fratty or whatever it is it's that you know it's almost the music i like but something about it rubs me the wrong way that's very interesting like again this is the type of thing where i I guess the next album we're probably doing after this is Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut. Uh, Very curious. It And it was right in line with everything that I was listening to at that time and seems right up my alley. And yet there was something about their music that just rubbed me the wrong way. And so many people now have told me, you are going to listen to this album and you're going to think it's one of the best albums of all time as you get into it. And I am extremely skeptical on this. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm excited to give it a try. I don't think I'm going to like it either, but I, I was going to say, I don't have any preconceived notions, but I, I do have preconceived notions, but haven't really given it a, a chance whatsoever. Well, and I always tell people who are starting to get into our podcast, listen to the one that you think that you'll like the least because it might be the one that surprises you the most. And Oh, for sure. And my hope is the same thing will happen to me with an album that I think I will like the least is that aside from the songs that I already know that are not my favorite, the rest of it is going to really, really interest me. And I'm going to say this is a very, very well put together album. Yeah, no, I this is the same strategy that I use when I go to a restaurant that I haven't been to before is like I order the thing that seems like I wouldn't like it. 
um, like recently when I was in LA, um, I went to a taqueria and I ordered something just because it was a Spanish word and I didn't know what it was. And so I'm like, okay, I'll give that a try. And it was the thing I never would have ordered if it had, if it had had a full description because it was a ham sandwich quesadilla with like a big slice of ham and, uh, lettuce and tomatoes and, uh, and avocado. It was so good. It, it sounds amazing, but now I'm wondering so, what they actually called it. Uh, synchronizada. Yep. Wouldn't know it. Would have no idea what right, I'm eating. Exactly. So, so I am hoping that that Third Eye Blind will be my uh, quesadilla ham sandwich, but I kind of doubt it. Actually, they were originally going to go with quesadilla ham sandwich as the name of their first album, but they just went with Third Eye Blind. <laughs> I, I feel like that sounds like more more of a Limp Biscuit album. <laughs> name but yeah uh we we will not be getting to limp biscuit on this show sorry no nope, sorry you two fans that are left over um okay check us out on instagram at instagram.com slash jukebox hidden facebook at facebook.com slash hidden jukebox hidden jukebox.com uh listen to yeah, us we'll post on at least on hidden jukebox.com or in the show notes uh link to that uh video that i keep talking about yeah and you know, as I always say, tell your friends about us. Uh, Please like like us on leave these platforms. Yeah, le- leave a review. We're not around if none of you are listening. So we appreciate that's listening. right. And the and, moment the last person stops listening, we disappear from the photo, like in Back to the Future. It, it's it's totally going to be uh, 1985 all over again, or 1955. Yeah. I don't remember how it works exactly. But if you keep listening, we're going to call our our cousin Chuck and invent rock and roll. Listen to this. Uh, so stay alive out there only if yeah, nothing else that. so that you can keep listening to us. Uh, That's in, the main reason. Until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton.